2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Moses Storm. When you're high, there's probably no
3: greater chore than having to do any chore.
2: (laughs) That and more. But before that, I want to tell you about another podcast, a Webby award-winning podcast called The Kitchen Sisters Present. It's an array of sound-rich stories of hidden worlds and lost recordings and new tales of remarkable people. You'll hear stories about a long-forgotten cassette tape of Patti Smith, about the financial guru of San Quentin, about the first all-girl radio station, plus intimate conversations with poets and farmers and grandmothers and more. The Kitchen Sisters are Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. They're sound hounds, activists, archivists, uh, keepers of culture. (laughs) Take a listen at kitchensisters.org, or just search your podcast app for The Kitchen Sisters Present from PRX is Radiotopia. Also, we had so much fun creating these little prizes for a select few, three people who had pre-ordered the risk book at theriskbook.com and then sent me an email with a screenshot showing their pre-order to prove that they had done it. We're going to do this again, okay? So by March 26, if you can prove to me that you pre-ordered the book by going to theriskbook.com and then emailing me at, at risk showcom with your little screenshot there, uh, you will be eligible for the next round of little prizes we're going to give out. You know, uh, like Ceci Cholst did it, and, and I sang her name throughout the entirety of last week's episode. Uh, I did someone's uh, phone voicemail recording, and I wrote a little opera for someone else. So you're going to want to pre-order the book for friends, too. The book is so extraordinary. Did you know there's going to be stories in the book that haven't been? on the podcast yet an amazing story about a young lady who takes in a homeless youth into her own home and then finds he's a fugitive from the law a story about steamy gay sex in the military in the 1960s a story about a young man who learns that his favorite uncle has a lifelong very profound secret Plus, dozens of our very, very favorite stories that have been on the podcast and interviews with the storytellers. You're going to want it not just for yourself, but for lots of your friends as well. So go to the riskbook.com, pre order, send proof of that to Kevin at risk show.com by March 26th, and you might be our next winner. Now, here's the show. Whoa, whoa! Oh, kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Retvard von Dernberg behind me now. He is a fan of the show, who sent us this uh, composition he created with only the sounds that are were available on a Commodore 64 home computer from 1982. That That is the computer that I was taught on in the eighth grade when I first became completely terrified and bewildered by computers. In fairness, those were those amazing days when the ordinary user had to type in about 40 lines of code in order to make a computer do something like exit a program or turn a page. It was a bit less user-friendly. Now, we are calling this week's episode Drugs. (laughs) Drugs It reminds me of one of the all-time classic episodes of Risk Called Under the Influence It was uh, February of 2011 So many people write in to say Hey, I've listened to every episode of Risk ever And then I write back to them and find out They don't even know that there's over two years' worth of episodes that are no longer on iTunes, uh, but that you can buy at our shop at risk or if you become a $5 a month or more patron of ours at patreon.com risk, you can get them that way. You should really scroll through the listen pages at our site to look at the tables of contents of those early episodes. There's people like, Samantha B and Janine Garofalo and Kamel Nanjiani and Sarah Silverman and Margaret Cho, Mark Marin. I can't even remember all of them. There's a lot. Oh, and speaking of Patreon, I have to give a shout-out to our latest $25 or more a month <laughs> patron. That's Kevin Haddad. Thank you so much, Kevin. But as I was saying, this week's episode is all about... Drugs. I always say, we're at risk. We don't endorse or condone any of the choices that were made in the stories. We're not promoting anything other than that people share honestly about their life experience. Now, certainly some of the highest highs and the lowest lows and the weirdest weirds and the nuanciest nuances (laughs) are experiences that people do have. Under the influence. A lot of life passages take place. People learn to lose their inhibitions, see beyond the surface in some ways, connect with others in new ways, but also risk becoming dangerously disconnected, as we will hear. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the absolutely hilarious Andrea Allen. There's a couple times in Andrea's story where she says, I'm not like that monk. That's because she told her story on stage at Caveat in New York right after Richard Cardillo told the story about being a monk in Peru that was on last week's episode. But before that, we're going to hear from the amazing Moses Storm, who has told us a lot of really memorable stories about growing up very poor. Now, Moses happened to be deathly ill, (laughs) With the flu, the night that he showed up at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles to tell this story, everyone was amazed that he did show up. He was white as a sheet, he was sweating, but he figured the show must go on and he knocked it out of the park. So here he is now. This is Moses Storm with a story we call Nature's Alarm Clock.
3: hi guys how are you okay I'm awful um this show was a mistake I shouldn't be here absolutely but sometimes I'll take an Adderall again on Facebook and just agree to things um I don't know if you've ever I this is the first time I had to go like I got out of the hospital like I had to go to the ER for this we, we drive up to uh Big Sur for Valentine's Day every day And I was, like, green. And my girlfriend's like, you need to go to the hospital. I was like, I think I'll be fine. And then before I could finish fine, I had thrown up at her feet. Uh, And I was raised like a dirt kid, so we never went to, like, the hospital before. Even when I broke my shin, my mom just put an ACE bandage on it. So then I had an ACE bandage with a broken leg in it. Um, And I don't know if you've ever been to the ER uh, with the flu, but it's a room where people are, like, actually dying, and they're old. And... um, The doctors like to do this really fun thing where if you go to the ER with the flu, uh, they like to treat you like a little bitch. (laughs) Just, oh, oh, okay, you're in pain, okay. And they're like, they're zinging me with my vitals, like, oh, 88 over 100, so you're fine. (laughs) Um, Also, one last thing on this, and then I'll shuffle out into the streets, uh, wandering into traffic. If you have a sick friend, they have this flu, stop telling us to take ginger stop that's irresponsible no I'm telling you it's ginger you're feeling a little bad what you do is you heat up some ginger you put it in your pillowcase tuck yourself in go sleep outside it's ginger it's alkaline I'm probably gonna do medicine I'm probably gonna go with medicine everyone's wrong all the all the doctors are wrong about Dayquel oh your know, ginger was just solid Dayquil the whole time You're killing us. You're the people that killed people at the Civil War. It's ginger. (laughs) I get the instinct, though. I am so cold, and I'm also so sweaty right now. Um, I get the instinct for, like, natural remedies for sure. Uh, I was one of those people that thought, like, uh, drugs are poison. A lot of people are looking at me like exactly how I feel. That's fun. Uh, (laughs) Um... Uh, drugs are poison. That's what I thought. And that was a very unpopular opinion uh, with my older brother, David. Um, and David and I never got along. Because I think a lot of our relationships just consisted of David pushing me to do things. And then I would do them in the hopes that we would somehow connect on something. Uh, I and mean, things were like way outside of my comfort zone or even interest level. So on his 18th birthday, he wanted nothing more for me to not only buy him acid, but then take it with him. I was like, well, absolutely not. I'm 15. I, I haven't even had a sip of beer yet. I haven't even humped a couch. I'm not going to dive whole body first into drugs with acid. And by the way, if, if weed is a gateway drug, acid is what the gate is protecting. So I was like, okay, I'll, but I, um, there's no way I'm doing this. But then he gave me that irrefutable argument that all older brothers give you that like make you see things in a new light. He just said... Uh, don't be a little pussy. My, got me there, you cannot argue. Flawless older brother logic. By the way, can we stop calling people that we think are weak pussy? Like, why don't you try delivering a baby out of your dick hole, and then we'll see whose genitals are stronger. I have a friend who kept his kidney stone, because he was like, that's the most pain in my life. He kept it in a jar. I think we'd have a lot less deadbeat dads if males had to put like, babies to their dick holes. Because you would be like, look how much pain that was. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll do this with you under one condition. As long as we are home before dinner tonight, we would take turns who would make dinner in the house because my mom was a terrible cook. Maybe you have something like this in your house where the first step of all the recipes is taking the batteries out of the smoke detector. <laughs> that was logic that, that baffled me. I'm like, how are you going to remember to take the batteries out but then not the brownies? Could you just, she's like, I made brownies. Like, no, they're black. Could you make them brown? Could you just make them what the word is? (laughs) He's like, yeah, acid only lasts three or four hours. We'll be home way before then. I was like, I've seen movies. No, let's just give ourselves five or six hours just to be safe. Because, you know, nothing alleviates the anxiety of taking drugs for the first time. Like a time limit. So we call his drug dealer to let him know that we're coming over early. He gives us his address, it's 2107 and a quarter. Okay, and already it's like red flag. What is this, what is this quarter in your address? Like when someone gives you an address and it's like something's just not right. It's like when you get like a text message and like a green bubble pops up, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> Android. <laughs> Did you know Megan was poor? We're driving around for 45 minutes, can't find his address anywhere. So we give him the second call, and he's like, it's 2107 and a quarter. He's like, mad at us now. (laughs) Now that I'm at the end of my life, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's like, so he's like mad at us, and then uh, he he gives us the address again, and and we're driving around, and I finally see it. 2107 and a quarter, painted on the side of a boat parked in a (laughs) cul-de-sac. I don't have the energy to lie to you right now. (laughs) Which I, I, like, whatever, no judgment. Do whatever you gotta do to not be homeless. But also, we were on two phone calls with him and it never came up? (laughs) All I'm saying is that if you live in a boat parked in a cul-de-sac and then someone asks you, "Uh, where do you live? Uh, You don't get to say just numbers. (laughs) You might wanna bring up the fact that you're in the one non-land vessel. And that you're, in fact, a suburban pirate. (laughs) So we knock on this guy's window, which is a circle, because that's how they look in boats. And uh, this guy gets out, who's like, uh, he's pretty intimidating. He's like, pretty stocky, but he's also, his clothes are filthy, but he's got this very, like, clean, cream blazer on and this, like, trimmed, neat beard. He unfolds out of the boat. Like, he looks like... The best way, I can't think of it a better way, but he looks like Wes Anderson presents a drug dealer. Like I could've sworn I heard like piccolo music coming out. As we buy two tabs of acid from him each, we go up to the reservoir to take the first tap. Coincidentally, where a boat should be. Hour goes by, don't feel anything. So we take the second tap. Um, I know also what happens, but nothing. So I don't really feel anything that significant, so I'm like, oh shit, I guess I'm just like, great at drugs. (laughs) And my brother's like, no, that guy thought we were idiots. He just sold us fake acid. Let's go back there and get our money back. I absolutely not. Okay, I wanted to connect with you, but that's the line. I'm not gonna go, we're not gonna go fight a guy who lives in a boat parked in a cul-de-sac. This guy clearly has nothing to lose and a great escape plan. He bursts one fire hydrant. He floats out of there. So I'm able to convince my brother to take me home. Uh, My mom, all my siblings are there. So just to be safe, I exhale myself to my room. And I'm watching Discovery Channel's Planet Earth. And on this episode, they're featuring birds and their exotic mating calls. So these male birds will, like, puff out their chests. They'll contort their bodies. And in an effort to seduce females, they'll just scream at them. Uh, a lot like real men. This shit is already a trip, even if you're not tripping. Even more of a trip if you're tripping and you don't know that you're tripping. Two tabs of acid have now kicked in, and now the British narrator is blowing my mind. He says this. He goes, "Birds are nature's alarm clock." Ooh. <laughs> And who wakes up the birds? <laughs> Is it bats? Just then, my mom comes in the room. She goes, "Hey, time to start dinner." Fuck. When you're high, there's probably no greater chore than having to do any chore. So I for sure need my brother's help and. I've never been high before, so I'm not thinking, oh my God, I cannot wait till this is over. My only thought is, well, I guess this is forever now. (laughs) I made one bad decision and now my eyes can taste color. (laughs) I walked to my brother's room and all you need to know about my older brother, David's acid trip is that he is now in a puffy zipped up winter jacket to his neck in a full flop sweat eating a yogurt. Here's why that's scary. There's no yogurt in the house. The yogurt was coming from outside the house. So then, that's the person I need help from, by the way. Uh, So then we walk to the kitchen, how we think human beings walk, Uh, which is inhaling as you take a step, it's just, Like I'm walking like just the front part of a horse. (laughs) And I don't know if you've been to your kitchen, but your kitchen is the most complicated room in your house. There are so many more knobs than you think. It's, most kitchens are mostly knobs and they're so scary and they're so weird and no one talks about them. Go to your kitchen tonight. I suggest a little bit of mescaline and look at all your fucking knobs. They're so bulbous. It's mind blowing in there. But once we start cooking, we are on fire. It is like a Food Network show in there. I am flipping things up in pants, catching it way over here. Seasoning from this high. You know, you see that on TV. You don't need to do that. That does the same as that. I'm seasoning up here. And more importantly, my brother and I are moving in perfect synchronicity. This is the only person in the world that understands what I am going through. For the first time I feel like, oh, my God, we are communicating in a language that's more profound and beyond just verbal speech patterns. I remember every single frame of that dinner to this day. I like the way you, 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 I cut the chicken, to the seasoning that went into the way it smells. This is honestly the best meal I've ever cooked. 30 minutes goes by, or a week. There's, there's no way to tell. My mom comes in the kitchen, she goes, what are you doing? You haven't even put the chicken in yet? Turns out for the past 30 minutes, been doing nothing but just moving pots and pans of water around. idiots so my mom is take over cooking the rest of, of the dinner everyone eats the dinner that, that she cooks the next day everyone gets food poisoning from the chicken that she cooked except me i couldn't eat i was looking at my plate i was like oh, i'm not gonna eat chicken i'm not gonna eat nature's alarm clock So in this one instance, the drugs that I thought were poison actually saved me from being poisoned. Thank you guys.
4: So we tripped down to Market Street, and I decided to buy a hot dog.
5: I put the hot dog up to my mouth, and somebody started screaming. And I looked down at the hot dog, and there
3: was a face on him. And he started telling me that I couldn't eat him and he had a wife and seven kids at home to support. Finally, I decided I was just hallucinating, so I put it in my mouth and bit down. <laughs> it screamed so loud
4: that you could hear it all over town, so I had to throw it on the ground and step on it.
3: I realized that I had murdered it, and I took off screaming down the street.
4: Ah! Ah! A girl with go by.
1: Thank you, everyone's partying, everyone's drinking. I'm very jealous, I, uh, I've been sober for four years now. Thank you. And when I was in the throes of being a drunk, you have this denial in your head where you think you're just like a really fun girl, you know? For example, I was at my boss's wedding. It's not gonna get better from here. (laughs) My boss is Jewish. It's a beautiful wedding. It's in Long Island. I black out halfway through. Lights off. A week later at my office, an intern is like, hey, Andrea, do you remember the thing with the yarmulke? And I was like, what thing with the yarmulke? What's the best case scenario to that, you know? So apparently I was in the corner of the wedding and I'd sequestered like four or five yarmulkes and I was lining them up and pouring champagne into them like they were tiny shot glasses. And then some older woman, probably the mother of the bride, I don't know, was like, excuse me, that's very disrespectful. And I was like, "Oh, is it Yamaka shot? Yamaka shot? Yamaka shot? top Mazzeltop? top I know. It's bad. It is not in good taste. When that intern was telling me, in that moment, I was like, "Am I an anti-religious freedom fighter?" Or? am I an alcoholic drinking out of tiny hats? (laughs) I had to really examine myself. And then denial set in and I moved on. Um, Another time, I used to misread signals a lot from men at bars. I always thought they were trying to fuck me, which to be fair, a lot of them were. But one time I was hitting on a guy and he had crutches. And he was leaning against the wall with his cast out. And I was like, I'm fucking gonna get this. This is good. We're vibing. So I put my hand up against the wall to kind of corner him. (laughs) And I go in for the kiss. He is not interested. But he can't get away from me. because he has crutches. So he does like a little bit of a shuffle and then just bunts me with a crutch. Like, no thank you, ma'am. And I was so, I know, bunts. It was very much a baseball move. He didn't want to hit me, but he wanted to like shoo me a little bit out of the way. And I was so hammered and I was so embarrassed and rejected that I was like, whatever, you're crippled. It's not like you can fuck. I know, I am not the monk guy. I'm a really bad person. Like, if you sexually assault a crippled person and then a second later, like, you can't fuck me like I need it, like, you gotta start feeling, what is? I'm looking at the man in the mirror. Sexually harassing men at bar, you know, it's like, oh my God, wake up, Andrea. But, you know, addiction is a disease and it just gets worse and worse. And I think about, like, how I was in such denial and I came up with a list of things. If you are worried that you are an alcoholic or an addict, here's some red flags. Number one if you have a one night stand with a magician or a DJ, or someone who is both. That is a big, put the bottle down. There's no magic. If you buy a feather boa in a blackout that costs $200 because I need it. Not a good sign. If you pee or throw up regularly in places that are not the toilet, look into it. And if you lose your phone or friends at bars more than two to three times a month. You know, everyone knows that girl. Where's my, Sarah had my phone and I can't find her. I was that girl. All the time. As I kept drinking, I needed more and I started doing drugs as well. And what goes better with booze than cocaine? (laughs) Who doesn't love a little blow? So I started doing coke and I I wasn't like a coke addict. My disease is alcoholism, but I definitely like to play in all the areas. Um, And um, I actually only did cocaine three times, but I wanna take you guys the journey with me of me doing cocaine. You already heard about me assaulting the man. It's like, how much worse could it get? So much worse. So the first time I did cocaine, I was at a party with a bunch of trust fund kids. You guys know them. They're the worst, right? They're super rude. I'm in the bathroom with my friend and I'm like, I fucking hate these asshole, rich piece of shit kids, man. I just can't. And he's like, I know, I know, I know. And I was like, dude, I am gonna ruin this party. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I'm like, I am gonna steal all their drugs. He's like, what? I'm like, you heard me.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I go out and there's a big table and there's a bag of Coke and a bag of weed in the table. And I just walk up to it and swipe it into my bag like a little drug cat, like meow, and I walk out of the party like a criminal. And now I'm on the streets of New York and I'm just selling drugs to strangers. I'm like, you guys want drugs? You cash? I got drugs. You guys want drugs? I make $500 of the stolen drugs, and then. I go back to my dorm room, because I am in college at the time. My parents did pay for me to go to art school, like a vapid, drugged out asshole. And I start baking the stolen weed into weed brownies. I'm like a fucked up Betty Crocker, like, so put the butter in the... And then I eat five weed brownies. Have you guys ever had like two weed brownies? I was high for three whole calendar days. <laughs> the walls were like, whoa. I was like, "Am I gonna be high for?" <laughs> my roommates were like, "I was like lying on the floor." My roommates were like throwing blankets and towels on me, like aren't like I was in the army or something. <laughs> you would think after that it would be like, "Let's just lay. Let's calm down. Let's step back." a little bit, right? Wrong. (laughs) The second time I do cocaine, gay marriage has just been legalized, and I'm like, "Woo!" And I have a big party, I'm like, come on over gay boys, let's do some drugs! So I order a bunch of cocaine, and we're all partying and things are getting like really intense Madonna's playing I'm like letting them do lines off my bare ass I'm like we're connecting right now gay straight doesn't matter and then I like let my boyfriend finger blast me in front of them because I feel like that's a way to celebrate their new rights and then I start playing music super loud I get Marilyn Manson going and I'm like the beautiful people the beautiful people the beautiful people the beautiful people and then I grab a bunch of booze and I start pouring Pouring it on my laptops because I'm like, who needs possessions? Who needs anything? I love drugs. And then I grab black lipstick and I start putting it all in my face, like in a weird Mickey Mouse style, Marilyn Manson, I don't know what's happening. And then I pass out. And I wake up. My apartment is filled with passed out gay men. It's like a harem. <laughs> There's coke like floating through the air. Like, s- I'm like skiing into my living room. I'm, like, what the fuck happened? My laptop is broken. Barry Manilow is playing out of like one speaker. And I have like half blackface that I did by accident. Oh no, is right. So you would think after that, time to ramp it down. No baby, ramp it up. So I am at a bar alone and I'm getting drunk. I'm not gay, I'm like a little bi. And there's a girl there who's also clearly not gay but I I start going to the bathroom and doing coke. and We're talking, you know how coke people really feel like they're saying something important. And I'm like, I feel like we're really connecting right now. Can I buy you a drink? And she's like, No. And I'm like, Okay, that's fine. So then I go to the bathroom. I start doing coke. And then the bartender's like, You got to get out of here. You can't do drugs. You're making this girl feel weird. I'm like, I own this bar. And he's like, No, you don't. I'm like, That's fair. I'll be going. I gotta go. And then I go over to my friend's house. I'm like, Dude, you want to do some blow? And he's like, Totally. I'm a piece of shit. Let's do drugs together. Okay. So then we're doing coke, but he also has a juicer. So it's like we're juicing. We're doing coke. We're juicing. We're doing coke. We're juicing. We're doing coke. It's healthy. It's unhealthy. It's healthy. it's unhealthy. It's healthy. It's, it's unhealthy. Everything's going so fast. And then I'm like, I feel really empty inside. Can I like suck your dick? Like, is this something that maybe I could do to make the pain go away? And he's like, sure. I'm a piece of shit guy. I'll let you suck my dick. But he has that coke dick. It's like a, it's like a balloon with custard in it. You know what I mean? He just trying to fucking suck it in there. It's so, it's just not happening. And the sun is rising and I have so much juice in my system and drugs and booze. And I'm like, I need more adrenaline. So I go over to St. Mark's place. You know, where the crust punks and the homeless kids hang out? And I let one of them pierce my nipple. I am now a 29-year-old woman and I have to look down at my tit every morning and remember that I can't control myself with substances. (laughs) Me and that monk have a lot in common. (laughs) So I'm sober now. Thank you. Thank you. It was a hell of a journey. Um, but all it took, really, was getting kicked out of an apartment, breaking into my own apartment twice, getting a public urination ticket, getting a disorderly contact ticket, ruining five to six iPhones, two iPads, a few MacBook Pros, ruining a lot of friendships, having a few dozen one-night stands, and also getting a nipple piercing. But. You know what? The nipple piercing is actually kind of my favorite part of the whole journey. (laughs) Because every day when I'm naked, I look in the mirror and I'm like, rock and roll. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm Andrea Allen.
4: when she was just five years old there was nothing
0: happening at all every time she puts on a the radio there was
2: This is risk this is of course the velvet underground in 1970 and we just heard from andrea allen who you can find on twitter at andrea comedy and before that an interstitial by our episode editor jeff barr that he titled wiener on the ground with mustard i remember seeing that educational movie about lsd It's like 1969 or so that that was made, but they showed it to us in junior high, and it was one of those many little movies that they showed us that made me think, wow, I can't wait to try that. But you know, one thing that I can encourage you to try and with a completely clear conscience is a casper mattress because i have one casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience with three mattress models there's the original casper the wave And the essential they're perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry they have a breathable design that helps you sleep cool regulates body temperature and it's delivered right to your door in a small how do they do that sized box with free shipping and returns in the US and Canada and you can be sure of your purchase because they have a 100 night risk-free sleep on it trial after all you spend one-third of your life sleeping so you should be comfortable I have the original Casper mattress and I'm not kidding when I say that I sleep better on this mattress than on any mattress I've ever slept on in my entire life so get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash risk and using risk at the checkout that's casper.com slash risk use the code risk for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Also, if you live in California or Nevada, it's an exciting time right now. MedMen is helping to redefine the cannabis industry and empower people to exercise their right to purchase cannabis. MedMen is bringing a premium and traditional shopping experience to the cannabis space. All of the MedMen stores feature a wide range of products with knowledge and approachable staff to ensure you find what's best for you. Their shops are open for both recreational and medical cannabis users. Anyone over 21 with a valid ID is welcome, and MedMen is committed to providing the highest in quality and safety, so you won't have to worry. About what you're buying. I've seen the pictures of the stores themselves and they're gorgeous. They're very high end looking shops. And I've spoken to the people who work there, very knowledgeable. It's very exciting. So, Check out one of their eight retail locations throughout Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, and Las Vegas, or go to medmen.com to find your nearest store. That's M E D M E N.com. Plus, exclusively for risk listeners, visit Medmen and tell them you heard about them on the Risk Podcast for $10 off your order. Limit one per customer. Terms and conditions apply. Check out Medmen today. Now, our final story is really quite an extraordinary one. Stephanie Lyons reached out to us directly. She was a listener who wrote right to pitches dot showcom She's just so fascinating and a pleasure to work with. I have a feeling she's got more stories in her. You can find Stephanie on Twitter at Steppy Lyons. Now, John LaSala... Is one of our story editors here. He did a remarkable job with the cutting of this story, all the music and sound design. So here is Stephanie Lyons now with a story we call We All Fall Down.
5: was sitting at work and I get this email and I open it and there's a headline that says FBI seeking desperate dad bank robber. I scroll down, I see this granulated pixel picture, lean over and pick up the phone and I call my mom. Now my mom's normally a very southern Texas woman, no matter what's going on, every day is a good day. And this time she answers the phone, hello, mom, yes, uh... Did Eddie rob a bank? (sighs) Yeah, your brother robbed a bank. I'm immediately just in shock and start asking multiple questions. Like, what's the plan here? What are we going to do? Where is he? She sighs loudly and, your father's getting him to Mexico tonight. Oh. I think this is a really, really bad idea, mom. I can't talk about this right now and she hangs up on me. So, I'm sitting there in shock. My sister, who's kind of the second mom of the house, she's much older than me and my little brother. She's the one I always go to for really anything. I'll call her, she's gonna have a solution for this. And I think part of me was also hoping that this wasn't real. That there was gonna be some little fact would come out and we find out that this was a mistake and we're being over dramatic, which is very like all of us. So I call her and, Melissa, dad is getting Eddie to Mexico. He robbed a bank. I just talked to mom. She told me the same thing. What the fuck are we going to do? She's like, if he goes to Mexico, we're never going to see him again. If he goes to Mexico, all I'm thinking is he's going to get killed. He's either going to get into drugs so bad that he'll die that way. Or the FBI will find him and he'll go down a blaze of glory. Now, my brother is two years younger than me preppy, blonde hair, big blue eyes, super cute, very charismatic, kind of that guy who, you know, had a change star, saved up for money so my dad could go to a Notre Dame game one day, who never let a woman carry anything heavy, who gave homeless people money constantly. Eddie was lucky, 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 lucky. Like, everything he did was luck. Every time he did a scratch off, he won. Whether it was $10 or a couple hundred, he was a lucky little shit, you know, like that guy. And he would give those tickets away. And it was like, you just asked me for $20 because you can't eat and you just won 30 and you're giving it to a homeless person. And he's like, well, yeah, because you're giving me the 20 I don't need it. It was like, never put it together. Like, no, dude, (laughs) that's not really how this works. Like, make sure your bowl's full before you, like, give stuff away. But that's just who he was. You know, he was compassionate and kind and, you know, volunteered. And my mom worked at a homeless shelter. He would go down there, and he was like the life of the party. He knew all their names. He knew their families. He you know, would go up to the woman and be like, oh, you're so gorgeous today. Look at you. You're killing me. And, you know, just that guy. and But kind of that guy who had the Eddie Haskell ability, you know, where we'd be hanging out with our friends' moms and they'd come in and he'd, you know, let me help you with dinner, Miss Kelly, and let me take your purse for you. And then later that night, we'd wahoo beer together. You know, I think the reason why he was able to successfully do heroin and be so ingrained in drug addiction without notice was because of his ability to be both sides. My parents just didn't see it. My drug addiction was very different, or especially as a female. it's like, you weigh 100 pounds, like what's going on here? And I was more afraid of pissing them off, whereas he was more like, oh, who cares what they think? You know, just tell them what they want to hear and they'll stop. So he and I went to rehab around the same time and I got sober and I was living in a halfway house and I came home to visit my mom for like a day or two and I realized he was using again. And it was kind of the end of our friendship. Like that was the day that our friendship changed. I rationalized his using as, well, he's 21, I'm 23. I've had more time. He just needs more time to use, and he'll bottom out. And it, like, never bottomed. You know, the big joke when he was a little boy was that he was going to either grow up to be president or be in prison. And unfortunately, that became very real. It just never occurred to anyone it would go the way that it did because he was just so full of life and light. And I realize now that, like, he hit the ground running and he just stopped when he hit the wall. There was no stopping for him. Whereas my sister had her kids, and Eddie and I were fairly young when we became aunt and uncle. I would come out to visit out in Katy, where they all lived, and Eddie would be like, come here, come here, and he'd go to the side of the house, and he'd open an ice chest, and it would be filled with water balloons. He's like, let's go get the kids. You know, and he was that uncle, you know, where he would, have water fights in the house and food fights. And we were the fun aunt and uncle. And that's what my sister saw. So Melissa and I are not knowing what to do. So I just start Googling. What do you do when your brother ups a bank? What do you do when your parents want to get your brother to Mexico? Then I realized, can I get in trouble if I know that my parents are getting my brother to Mexico? There's not a lot coming up except for the FBI's website. So I told my sister, look, the only thing that's coming up is the FBI. Like, we're going to have to call the FBI. And she sighs and says, okay, let me know how it goes. I'm like, no, wait a minute. Like, you're the big sister. You're the one in charge. Like, this is a woman who taught me how to use a tampon. Like, why am I calling the FBI? She's like, go pray about it and let me know how it goes. And she hangs up. When she does... I suddenly realized that I'm sitting probably three or four feet away from my first cube mate, and there's 35 people around me. And I'm in an open forum, and I'm discussing kind of loudly that my brother robbed a bank and whether or not we should turn him in or should we allow him to be exported into Mexico. So I Googled the phone number, write it down, and run into a conference room, and I call the FBI. My brother had recently had a baby with a girl. He walked into the bank, he told the bank he needed the money for his daughter. Which was ironic because when the woman gave birth to her, he stole money from my mom's wallet and bought Coke in the lobby while like literally the baby was halfway out of her. And now he was using her as a ploy to be deemed the her now. But my dad's a Texas Republican. So like the law's just a piece of paper that money can get rid of. And for my family, the way that they saw this, and this is where I separate, and I, my reaction was very different. My entire family saw him going to prison as if he had died. It was very much a grief. It was, he's dead, he's in prison. You know, he'll go to prison and that means he's dead. That means he's nothing. Whereas I saw it as an opportunity for him to stay alive. That was the difference between our reactions. Even my sister, her reaction was very much like, she felt like we were sending him to death. Whereas I felt like we were preventing death, and I think I was right. But for my parents, this was their baby boy, he's the youngest, and because I had been a drug addict and he and I had used together, I had different context than everyone else. So they're not just finding out he robbed a bank, They're finding out that, like, oh, he's, like, this far into drugs. Like, he's this bad of a drug addict. They didn't realize how, like, really the realm of drug addiction and the craziness in that world. Whereas I had had the years of stealing beer and various other crimes that we weren't caught doing. So I think the grief for them came in. Whereas I was like, you motherfucker. (laughs) Like... Like, I know, like, doing cocaine can make you feel invincible, but this is a little ridiculous. Like, go get a tattoo, go swipe your mom's ATM card. You know, like, stealing a 12-pack of beer out of a gas station is, like, not the same thing. walking into a bank with a gun and putting it in someone's face and robbing it. It's not the same thing. So I go and call the FBI... And with all my maturity that I could muster, the woman answers, and, you know, nice Southern, Ha the FBI, Houston Division, very Texas. And I say, saying, um, yeah, so I may or may not have a friend whose brother may or may not have robbed a bank. I mean, we think he could have robbed a bank. We're not sure, but there's a possibility he robbed a bank. And we're not really sure what to do. And I didn't know if you could tell me what to tell her. Not me, but like for me to tell her what to do. She cuts me off very quickly and she says, well honey, I would have your friend call herself. I'm like, well that's not really an option because like I said, she doesn't really know if he really did or not. We might be just being crazy, we're just thinking and she cuts me off again. Okay, you have two choices. You can have your friend call us. She can turn her brother in or she can give us a location of where her brother is so we can find him and take him in ourselves. It's like, well, is there any other options? I'm sorry, honey, there's not. So I hang up with her and call my sister, disappointed, thinking that there was going to be an option if he didn't do it or there's some other way out of this. And it's hitting me that, like, we're going to turn our brother in the FBI. This is what we are going to do. So I call her explain to her what they say and within a few seconds my phone beeps and I'm like hang on and I click over it's like early 2000s so we slowly answer call waiting and so I'm like hello and it's hi this is special agent Toby from the FBI bank robbery task force oh hi yeah I believe you called here about your brother I'm like can you hang on a minute <laughs> I click back over to my sister Melissa yeah it's the FBI. What are you talking about? Did you block your number? I'm like, why would I block my number? Because it's the FBI. I'm pretty sure they have caller ID. Oh, that did not occur to me. Well, he's on the other line. What are you going to do? She's like, well, conference me in. So I hit the conference button. I'm like, Agent Toby, my sister's going to be joining us. Oh, hi. Hi. It's nice to meet you. I understand you ladies are calling because your brother was involved in a bank robbery, and you're trying to get him taken in safely. Yes, that's true. Well, let me just go through a few things and ask y'all some questions. Okay, do you know if your brother is armed? No, I don't. Do you know if your brother would be willing to turn himself in? No, I don't. Do you know the location of your brother? I think we know. He possibly could be in two different places. Okay, do you know if your brother's on drugs right now? I don't know, but he probably is. Okay. Do you understand that any point in time in turning your brother in, that we may have to use excessive force? Do you understand what I'm saying? And I realize what he means is, we may have to kill your brother. Knowing who my brother is, he's kind of a a go-down-a-blaze-of-glory kind of kid. So immediately I become fearful and think... Yeah, that's exactly how he would love for this story to end. So how are we gonna make sure that's not how this ends? So Melissa finally steps up and becomes the big sister again and takes over the conversation. She's like, I'm going to go talk to him. I'm gonna get him to turn himself in. We're gonna get him to do this. And she starts negotiating. Do you think we can get him a lesser, you know, sentence? Do you think we can do this? You know, and Agent Toby's like, absolutely, all those things will be considered. This is definitely the best way to go. Now, what are we going to do if you get him in the car and he decides this isn't what he wants to do? If we get my brother in the car and we get him to agree to turn himself in, anywhere in there, he can pull out, whether he jumps out. Another fear was, what if he does a drug overdose? What if he does have a weapon on him? There's a myriad of options, of things I had never considered that the FBI is now explaining that could happen. You know, and I'm thinking of like, you know, CSI and SVU and like all these crime shows and just like, this isn't happening. It's not gonna be like that, you know, it's fine. This is our brother, we've got this. But then also understanding that I clearly don't know my brother anymore. So we do need to go through all of this. We sat there for it was probably over an hour and really ran through every type of scenario, when to call the FBI. When to call 911, you know, when to, how to handle these situations, how to park the car in a specific way, how to drive in a specific place, making sure you stay on main roads, don't go on side roads, and all these little variables and hindsight that you're like, wow, that was really the FBI. But at the time, it was just this really scary and adrenaline filled me. You know, I remember like my lip was sweating and my heart was just beating and it was just full of adrenaline. I couldn't feel really anything, occasionally I'd take a breath. So we hang up. My sister is on her way to go find my brother and hopefully talk him into turning himself in. And I have to find a way to get out of work. So I walk into my boss's office and luckily this surly woman that I worked for wasn't paying attention. I was like, I have a family emergency, I'm gonna have to go. She gets me my paycheck a day early, which was great because it was Liberty weekend, so bonus. So I leave, and I'm heading to my apartment to go change because I don't know what to wear to the FBI, and business cash didn't seem right. So I went home to go put jeans on, and as I'm driving home, I just start thinking about my brother. We grew up really close to each other. We played army Man together. We did mud pies in the backyard. I called him Little Bit because he was my little bit. He was not a big man. He was 5'10", a little scrawny, but like had some muscle. We drank together. We snuck out together. This is the kid that convinced my mom so that we had to go to church camp so that he could hook up with a girl that he liked. In the sixth grade, he dated the eighth grade head cheerleader. He could be anything he wanted to be. And now he robbed a bank. And I just kept thinking his life is over. But, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe he'll go to prison. Maybe he'll be one of those guys who gets out of prison. Oh, I robbed a bank, but, like, now I help, like, youthful kids or what the hell ever, you know, like that guy, you know. And so before I know it, my sister calls. Hey, he agreed. We're in the car now on our way to your apartment. I'm like, okay, all right, all right. So <laughs> we hang up and... Before I know it, like the horn's blowing and I walk out. My sister's got this huge Texas monstrosity black car. And she hops out she's like, I cannot drive in this city. You're going to have to drive. And she is like, big sister's gone. We're back to freaking out. Fine, I'll drive. So I get myself up in this huge truck and immediately smell my brother's cologne Lagerfeld. And I look back and he's back there in like a polo shirt that has pink and blue stripes not the right color for prison and he's freshly showered and shaved and he's wearing his cross chain and I look at him and it's not what I was expecting he hits me on the shoulder and he's like are you mad at me? I, I don't know what I am I don't know what I am Well, we have an hour before we have to be there, so I was thinking we could go, like, stop and go and get some candy and some soda, and maybe go get a Starbucks, and of course I'm, like, half, like, you motherfucker. We're on the way to take you to the FBI and you want us to go run errands. But the other half of me is like, I don't know if we're ever gonna be in the car together again. I don't know what's gonna happen next, so I look at my sister for approval, and she just kind of shakes her head. I'm like, fine, let's go. So we go to stop and go. He, of course, has to borrow money <laughs> to get his snacks. <laughs> it's like, where's the bank robbery money, asshole? <laughs> but, so he uh, takes my 20, goes into the stop and go. <laughs> and the car kind of fills with silence again. And my sister's just distraught. And she's you know, fighting back tears. And she's looking out the window. And that's when I realized like, she's grieving him. She's seeing as this is the end of his life. And I just keep thinking, we were drug addicts together. I got sober. He didn't. He had a choice. He had an option. He knew there was a different way, and he didn't fucking take that different way. He always did everything I did. And this time he didn't. I was really angry at him for that. So... He comes out and hops back in the car, and he's like, put some music on. So I turn the radio on, and Bye 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 is playing. And when I was younger, I came home from waiting tables one time, and he has it on in in the living room, and he's practicing the dance. And he said, come on, we're going to do this dance. And he had taped the music video on VHS. And we sat there all night. And he was Justin Timberlake, and I was the three other guys. And we did bye 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 until we had it down. So we're in the car on the way to the FBI doing bye 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 moves, kind of just drinking in this moment with each other. And I just keep looking at him in the rearview mirror and trying to keep Melissa from crying and you know, on edge and aware of the fact that I don't know if he has drugs on him. I don't know if like at any moment we might piss him off, my sister might upset him, and he might go rogue. So it was very much like managing the situation. So I realized we have about 20, 25 minutes left. You know, it's kind of hard to kill time like on the way to the FBI. So I was like, I have my paycheck. Do you mind if I go deposit it at the bank? My sister was like, You want to go to the bank on the way of turning your brother in for bank robbery? I was like, Yeah. If I deposit before four, I'll have money, you know, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I don't know, Eddie. And they look up in the rearview mirror and he sits forward and he's like, let's go to the fucking bank. Throws his hands up in the air and let's go, let's go to the fucking bank. And we went to the fucking bank. We're looking at each other and it's like we're 16 again and, you know, we're stealing a high school mascot and we're taking off. And it's just this amazing rush. We're doing something that's really stupid together one more time. So we are at the drive-thru at the Capital One, and my phone rings. Hello, Ms. Lyons. Yes, this is Agent Toby. Hi. Are you at the Capital One on Wall Boulevard? Yeah. I'm making a deposit, which for some reason in my mind, like, that was significant. Like, that he knew I was giving money to the bank and not taking it. That didn't matter. He's like, you need to get here now. Okay, so I hang up, and my sister's like, is that the FBI? I'm like, yeah, she was, you didn't think they were following you? I'm like, you didn't fucking mention it. Like, you know, you should have pointed that out. It never occurred to me. That's how blind we are to the whole circumstance. So then you and I look at each other again in the rearview mirror, like like we got away with it for one more time. You know, it was like this very satisfying smile we gave each other. And so we go to the FBI and park, and it's just this normal building, Nothing special. Looks like a DMV, kind of. Just linoleum, gray walls. And there's these little weird windows. And there's a receptionist. And she asked why we're here. And we're like, we're here to turn our brother in for bank robbery. She's like, go through the double doors. And I was a little disappointed, like that it was so, like, get in line, kind of mundane. I thought it would be more dramatic. And then my sister and I go and sit down. And I can feel her vibrating. And I can hear her breath. And I can hear her trying to sniffle and hold her tears in. And I'm detached. I'm angry and relieved. You know, we got him here. He's safe. He's going to live. It's as if she's saying goodbye to him forever, which, of course, we don't know the reality. But she's just shaking. All of a sudden two plainclothes men come out and they start coughing my brother and Melissa stands up, no, and she runs over to him and she grabs him and she hugs him, it's like so hard. And she's crying and she just keeps saying, I love you so much and I'll go visit you and I'll write, please be okay in there and please be safe in there and don't get hurt in there and I'm so scared for you and please just be okay in there. And I'm just kind of in shock at her response for some reason. And I go to hug him, and I barely touch him. It was really awkward, and my brain hadn't caught up to the reality of the situation. And, and they take him, and they start bringing him down the hallway, and we start walking out, and they turn around one more time, and, and I see him walking down the gray hallway, and he turns around and waved. It was significant because for the first time he didn't look like a drug addict to me. Like I remembered my teenage brother. And how young he seemed. And knowing that he was going away for a very long time and feeling like it wasn't fair and that this wasn't right and that something was wrong and he didn't deserve this and this doesn't make any sense and You know he just has a drug problem he doesn't need to be going to prison and very very angry and confused and not kind of getting it and it wasn't until later that i really realized that he went into a bank and put a gun in a woman's face and how that must have changed her life and then watching my parents grieve him and my sister grieve him and seeing my family completely fall apart. And I realized that he belonged there. And he was supposed to go to prison and that that's what you do when you rob a bank. You go to prison. And I kept seeing this teenager that I snuck out with going to prison. And suddenly I was able to see this criminal who was my brother who went to prison. And it took a long time, but it Eventually, I started to reconcile this drug addict criminal and the teenage boy I used to play with and hang out with and realized that they were the same person. And I realized that my brother didn't think he mattered. And when people don't think they matter, they make horrible mistakes in life because they think that they can do whatever they want. And the truth is, is that he did matter. He mattered to me, and he mattered to my family. And I felt a lot of guilt because I got sober and he did it. And I still to this day don't understand why I went right and he went left. And Like he did everything I did in life. We stuck out at the same time. We started doing coke. We started drinking together. Like everything was, you know, I did it, he did it. And they didn't understand how in the fucking world he could rob a bank and go to prison. And I was really fucking angry and confused. And it took so much time and healing to put it all together. And I still to this day feel really guilty. And I still feel that like survivor guilt. I will never ever know why. I was able to get off of it and get my life turned around and he never could. He just never could. And I hated him for it. But as he started to become one person instead of these two people, it started to make more sense and I started to realize that as much as I wanted someone to have compassion for me and to have an understanding that we all fall down and we all fuck up And we all hurt each other. And it didn't mean that he was worthy of less love. And it didn't mean that he mattered less to me. It didn't mean that our childhood was erased or that he still was the guy who would give a lotto ticket to a homeless person. Like That's still who he is. And so being able to pull those two people together and to understand that you can love somebody and they can like fucking ruin some shit And they can really hurt people, but we all fall down.
2: is all for this week's episode folks this is the mountain goats behind me now i think i have seen people i think three different times i've seen people online say that risk is constantly playing the mountain goats this is in fact the first time they have appeared on the podcast we just heard from stephanie lyons and in a little bit i'm going to list all the places we're coming with the live show next and we need your pitches for those shows but first I want to remind you about MedMen with a wide range of products and a knowledgeable and approachable staff. MedMen is bringing a premium and traditional shopping experience to the cannabis space. Anyone over 21 with a valid ID is welcome. Check out one of their eight retail locations throughout Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego, and Las Vegas, or go to medmen.com to find your nearest store, that's M-E-D-M-E-N.com, plus exclusively for RISK listeners, visit MedMen and tell them you heard about them on RISK for $10 off your order. Limit one per customer, terms and conditions may apply, check out MedMen today, now. We have such an incredible list of shows coming up. On March 22nd, we are back at Caveat in New York City. Fran Tirado, Amy Gordon, Jezebel Express, and Gigi Lee. That's going to be an incredible show on March 22nd. At Caveat. On April 7th, we have a very special show. We're calling it Risk Behind the Scenes, where a storyteller tells a story and then we open it up. I ask them questions and have the audience ask them questions too. The people we're speaking to right now about doing that show, we're reviewing their stories and confirming that they can, in fact, do it, are Melina Williams-Hawes, Gaster Almonte. Elna Baker, Michelle Carlo, and the amazing Francesca Ramsey. On April 21st, we are back in L.A. at the Bootleg Theater. And now I'm going to list a bunch of shows where we're still taking pitches. We need you to send your story pitches to us for all these shows I'm going to list now. The first is April 21st in Pittsburgh. So if you live anywhere near Pittsburgh, pitch us the themes. There's three optional themes that night. Embarrassing or misfits or trapped. So pitch us those kind of stories, Pittsburgh people, on May 17th kansas city kansas it's actually in lawrence kansas where the show's happening it's on may 17th the three optional themes are disgust or trapped or coincidence so if you live anywhere near lawrence kansas pitch us folks on may 18th st louis missouri may 18th we are in st louis again the optional themes are we were young or abusive or Guilty Pleasure, May 25th, May 25th, we are in Atlanta. We're back in Atlanta on May 25th. The optional themes are Plans and Schemes, Love, or Rebellion. Or maybe you know someone who lives somewhere around about near Pittsburgh, or Lawrence, Kansas, or St. Louis, or Atlanta, Tell them to pitch us. If you go to risk-show.com submissions, there's all kinds of helpful tips for how to pitch us, how to start thinking of a story. It's all right there on the submissions page at risk-show.com. We can't wait to hear your stories. And don't forget, March 26 is the date by which we want to see your emails proving that you pre ordered the Risk book so that you would be eligible for a kooky, crazy prize of some sort or another. Just go pre order that book, pre order it for everyone you know at the riskbook.com, and then email me, you know, a screenshot showing that you did, you know, order. <laughs> at Kevin KevinAtRiskDestShow.com Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I am going to
4: make it through this year If it kills me I am going to make it through this year If it kills me
2: Here are the names of some more of the people who have pre ordered the risk book at the com. Then they send me an email at kevin at risk show.com with the proof that they pre ordered it. And the first is Radley Christianson Lauren Fagan. Is another of the people. Then there's Kara Torre, or just Torre if the RE is silent. Then there's Montana Misco and Sarah Hurwitz. Then there's Danielle Bickle and Ashley Kara Hur-